Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. The most controversial book about the Pope and the Vatican to appear for years is being ignored by the media. The Dictator Pope, written under the pseudonym of Marc Antonio Colonna, portrays Francis as a manipulative score settler who, far from ridding Rome of the corrupt old guard, is using them to consolidate his own power. It is a hatchet job, but a remarkably detailed one. Is it fair, though? Is it accurate? And why are we hearing so little about it in the mainstream media? I'm joined by Dan Hitchens, deputy editor of the Catholic Herald, who's one of the very few English-language journalists who have written a detailed piece about, about the book, and quite a critical one, and by Ed Condon, who is a distinguished canon lawyer. Dan, I wonder if you could begin by just giving us some idea of what's in this book. Most of it is about Pope Francis since he took over, though some of it's about his time as Archbishop of Buenos Aires, what it was like to work for him then, and there are some quite disturbing things said in the book on that subject. But in general, it paints a picture of the Vatican as, well, increasingly corrupt, unaccountable, opaque. Whenever it intervenes in something like religious orders like the Knights of Malta or the Franciscan Friars of the Immaculate, kind of causes disaster, and also of a I suppose the, the increasing dominance of a kind of liberal clique within the upper echelons of the church who helped to achieve the election of Pope Francis and are now increasingly dominant in pursuing their goals. It's written anonymously. It cites sources of varying degrees of trustworthiness. So it's difficult to get a handle on quite how much of it should be believed. But at the same time, unlike a lot of attacks on the Pope, which are kind of shrill, obsessive, uncharitable, it's quite kind of intelligently written. And it does repeat a lot of what people have been saying for for a while. Okay, well, Dan, I think that's a very diplomatic summary of the book. (laughs) First of all, I would say that it, it is uncharitable. Mm. It is motivated clearly by a very intense dislike of Pope Francis. On the other hand, I would say that some of the reports of his early career in Argentina are absolutely hair-raising. The picture it paints, and I'm not saying it's an accurate one, but certainly there's no shortage of sources, is, is of a man with a considerable temper who settles scores, who punishes his enemies relentlessly and has continued this modus operandi in the Vatican as well as in Argentina and basically says right and left he'll swing either way because he's essentially a Peronist, the pursuit of power motivated by the, the example of Juan Peron, mm. the famous dictator of Argentina, the pursuit of power is more important than the pursuit of any particular ideology. Now I'm not endorsing that but it is devastating. There are allegations of betrayal, there are allegations of all sorts of foreign policy shenanigans, such as the Vatican funding the election campaign of Hillary Clinton. Don't know if it's true or not, though apparently the Pope flew into a rage when Trump was elected, which I, th- I think I can believe a, lo- a lot of people did. But, Ed, you've read it too. What's your take on the book? I think it's basically a question of connect the dots. There are a lot of dots that make up this book. And I don't know that I necessarily agree with the conclusions he draws. And it's all about how you connect them. So, for example, the image that is portrayed of the Pope as a, a Peronist, someone who says, yes, wonderful to conservatives, yes, wonderful to liberals, and then does whatever he likes in the middle, or, you know, is willing to say yes to anyone, basically. It sounds very starkly like a, a damning criticism. 
But on the other hand, when I read it, I thought, well, this is a criticism that I've heard leveled against almost every bishop in the church. This is part of being in charge. If you're supposed to be a figure of conciliation and unity, you end up finding yourself saying yes to lots of people and leaving it to others to have to be the no. It's just part of the risks of that position. So I don't know that I accept that that means he's necessarily a Peronist. This is a criticism which could be leveled fairly or unfairly against almost anyone running a diocese. Okay, but I take your point. But if we could hone in on some of the specific allegations in the book, not necessarily relating to the Pope, but to what I thought perhaps most disturbing of all is the, the handling of the Vatican's finances by the same sort of corrupt people who played a role in forcing the resignation of Benedict XVI. And one of the central allegations is, is that APSA, which is basically the Vatican's treasury, has managed to shrug off, discredit, marginalize Cardinal Pell's reforms and that the Pope is going along with this and that very, very large sums of money have gone unaccounted for and seem to be entwined with all sorts of scandals. Well, that, again, it's a question of connecting the dots. No, I, I wouldn't dispute the dot, which is that there are lots of financial problems in the Vatican, but in a sense, it was ever thus. There have been tell-all exposés of corrupt Vatican dealings in the Curia under Pope Francis, under Pope Benedict, under John Paul II. This is something that is sadly not a surprise or a novelty. In terms of large amounts of money going missing or being unaccounted for or kept off balance sheet, this is also something that you know, I don't think it can be disputed. It is happening. But it was something that this Pope was supposed to be putting an end to. So, and here I think is where I would dispute the central thesis of the book, which is that Pope Francis is controlling or has co-opted the corrupt or insider factions in the Curia. Well, the way I connect the dots is it seems to me that the tail's actually wagging the dog. I don't know that Pope Francis is working closely with these people or winking at their bad practice. I think more likely they are doing a very good job of running rings around the Pope and preventing him from getting a grip. They did an excellent job of hobbling first Cardinal Pell, and it seems like every few months another senior figure in either the Prefecture for the Economy or the Vatican Bank is sacked. And the reason that's given is almost always, well, we would have prosecuted him if we didn't sack him because he was doing his job far too effectively and was looking into things. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember the name now. It, oh, it was the Auditor General in June, was escorted from the premises of the Vatican, and the press release that went out said he'd exceeded his mandate and he was investigating the private financial affairs of his superiors. I thought that's what an Auditor General was supposed to do. Exactly. Well, I, I'm quoting here from Dan's article in the Catholic Herald. As Colonna tells it, while earnest churchmen like Cardinal Gerhard Muller flounder, he was the sacked head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the Vatican is increasingly dominated by canny ecclesiastical politicians who devote much of their time to preventing important reforms. For example, the proposed audit from PwC was stopped. Anyone who seems serious about rooting out financial corruption just as Libero Meloni, the recently ousted Auditor General, quickly runs into trouble. Colonna also makes some unsettling claims, writes Dan, about what it is like to work for the Pope, both in today's Vatican and formerly in Buenos Aires Archdiocese. Now, if there is a thread running through this book, we may choose to believe it or not, but one of the threads, one of the things that crops up again and again in the sometimes attributed, sometimes anonymous quotes about the former Cardinal Bergoglio, is that he settles scores. Now, that's not really a charge I heard made against Cardinal Ratzinger, who was presented often as very ferocious, but not as a personal score settler, nor of any other pope I can think of in recent memory. I would almost turn that around and say that one of the criticisms I hear from people who love the Pope Emeritus dearly is that he refused to do so, that he was almost unnecessarily reticent 
in I wouldn't say score settling, but in punishing or reprimanding people who strayed too far or disagreed with him too much or on too sensitive an issue. The persistent rumor of how he came to resign seems to involve always his refusal to sack Cardinal Bertone, his Secretary of State and longtime close friend. You could read either either way. Was Pope Benedict too afraid to settle scores, if you want to call it that, or to discipline individuals? And is Pope Francis too zealous in doing so? I don't know. I've not had personal experience of either way. But I think, again, it's a question of how you connect the dots. Dan? I mean, these aren't very serious allegations about how the Vatican is run, about financial corruption not being cleared up. In the end, I don't think that's why this book has, has caused a sensation. I think it's because that there's a bigger context, which is huge anxiety, particularly about the doctrinal debates in the church. And I just, I hear it all the time from, you know, whether it's from kind of senior figures within the church hierarchy, or what, you know, the, the man or woman in the pew, not kind of diehard conservatives, not people who follow every step of Vatican politics, just people who can see there's something going on, a real uncertainty about whether the church is teaching particularly on marriage and divorce, is being affirmed. And I think that's the point where Catholics get very nervous and will even contemplate criticising the Pope, even sometimes in public, is, is when there's some kind of question of the faith not being handed on. I mean, John Paul II's Vatican, obviously, you know, there was corruption then. Um, there were mistakes that he made and who he trusted and the people who he had around him. He still retained the worldwide devotion of the, of the Catholic faith and does still because there was a sense of he was teaching the Catholic doctrines that had been handed on to him. Absolutely, I take your point. And, yeah. and, and Uncle <clears throat> Benedict, one of the things that surprised me was that he didn't attract the intense sort of hysterical antagonism from liberals that I was expecting. Mm. But that's that's because he didn't goad them. Now, anybody who speaks to conservative priests quite often will be familiar with the way that they'll begin a conversation talking about Pope Francis, and before long they're talking about Begolio. And that, to me, speaks volumes about something that's happening to the papacy. I, I was talking to a conservative priest, but by no means an extremist the other day, a very good man with an outstanding mission. And I said, well, you could argue that there have been bad popes before. And he said, yes, but not a bad, not a bad pope who tried to change Catholic doctrine. But is he now, I'm, not, I'm not clear that he's trying to change Catholic doctrine. My point has always been that it's not clear what he is trying to do and that really it's very irresponsible of him not to be clearer about where he stands on a matter as important as divorce. Okay, so I think there are, there are a couple of interesting things to discuss here. The first is, is he being unclear? I'm not so sure he is being unclear. For example, the real crux of the whole issue of confusion around the church's teaching on divorce and remarriage is, can the divorced and remarried receive communion? Yes or no? Well, in the, the law of the church is perfectly clear. No, not if they're living together as husband and wife. Now, people have said, ah, oh, but the Pope is being very muddy on this. I'm not so sure that he is. He was asked the question, you've called for full integration of the divorced and remarried into the life of the parish. Does this mean taking communion? He said, no, it does not. That's what he said. Now, everyone around him keeps saying, ah, oh, but there's ambiguity in this but text. But he has, endorsed, in he has endorsed an interpretation of this controversial document, which says, yes, under certain circumstances, it is okay. He has said, yes, that's a correct interpretation. I've, I've read it in English and in its original Spanish, and it doesn't say that. It, it uses some really contorted language. Well, to be and honest, I would say it's you know, the, Pope, the, the Pope could clear up this mess, and there is a mess. When I have priests telling me, the cardinals telling me, that the Pope is undermining apostolic teaching, while 
other Catholics say he's doing nothing of the sort. I think you could argue that it's time for the Pope to step in and make matters clear. And I think it is partly this sense of confusion that's making people angry enough to write a book like The Dictated Pope. And it does not help that Pope Francis has so many allies in the media who are simply not prepared to address the criticisms of him. Dan, what do you think? I mean, I think that there are two confusions facing Catholics, whether they're in in the media or or not. The first is that it's not certain what the, the Pope has said, whether he's reaffirming teaching. It's fairly clear that he doesn't want to say definitively, yes, the traditional teaching of the church is true. And for as, as long as... I, as I he, think you're absolutely right. Yep. <laughs> right. And, and yep. as long as he delays saying that, you will see this proliferation of teachings from, you know, people saying, oh, well, you know, the church thinks divorce is fine now, to people constructing the most elaborate Heath Robinson-style intellectual contraptions to explain to themselves how what the Pope has said can be reconciled with traditional teaching. And every variety in between. But I think the other confusion is, you know, there are some Catholics who say, it's my job as a Catholic to be always on the side of the Pope, to, to defend whatever he says. And there are others who think that, you know, you can only do your duty as a Catholic by sort of denouncing the Pope in the most strong terms possible. And then a lot of people in between who are confused, hesitant, I know I am, about how, how much to say, how, how strongly to criticise, and what exactly we are I, criticising. I, I, I but think but right. the, the book has come into this context, I, into this free I context. think you're right about the polarisation. On the one hand, you have conservatives, some of them much more extreme than others, whose dislike of Bergoglio is so intense that they wish for a new papacy under you know whatever circumstances, let's put it as diplomatically as that, who loathe him are almost sedificantists, that is, people who think there is no Pope. You know, I had a priest say to me, well, intellectually, I know there is a Pope, but in my heart I feel there is no Pope. So you have those people, and I see it on Twitter all the time, for whom Francis is an an unspeakable character, even if he is occupying the chair of Peter. On the other hand, you have people who not only feel they need to defend the Pope because he's Pope, but people who have almost canonised him during his own lifetime and are journalists for leading Catholic publications. So you read hagiographies, you read the most uncritical, brown-nosing, perhaps I shouldn't say that, but nonetheless, I think it's not unfair, unendurably sycophantic articles about the Pope by people who are supposed to be impartial observers. But you're making the assumption that everyone who praises the Pope in this way is his ally, and that's where I draw a distinction. Interesting. I don't think that's the case. Explain. So we talk about this confusion and the real the real criticism of Pope Francis usually comes down to, well, he should address this confusion. And he should, you know, he can see what's going on and he needs to step in. There's two things here. First of all, I'm not satisfied that he is aware of the extent of the confusion that is going on in the church. The Pope himself has said he doesn't use the Internet ever. He never watches television. He hasn't watched television. I think it's 30 years now, he said. He reads one newspaper a day. The only reason he'd be aware of the level of confusion that's going on around these things is if someone tells him. And one of the things that I do give some credence to in this book, The Dictator Pope, is that he's being held relatively inaccessible to other people. So if he's not told, he won't know. Well, actually, The Dictator Pope says that whereas Benedict shut himself away in the papal apartments, one of the reasons Francis has chosen not to live in the papal apartments, but in this rather grand hostel, is because he wants to be he wants to hear what's going on. He wants to hear the gossip. He's very, very interested in gossip because he's always been a church politician. The book paints a picture of somebody who will stop at almost nothing to advance his own career, at which point, I say, doesn't necessarily ring true. 
he's a Jesuit. Jesuits haven't traditionally become even bishops, let alone pope. He was out in the cold for a very long time. He's a man who, for long periods of his life, must have had no reasonable chance of advancement or power. He was promoted unexpectedly very early, but then fell out of favour. And there's also no mention in the book of his spirituality. There's the implication that that's as malleable as his supposedly perinous political opinions. And I'm just not convinced by that. I'm not convinced either, and I think this is where you start to see the thesis of the book unravel, is if Pope Francis is ruthlessly consolidating power, has co-opted a corrupt faction of the Curia to run the church, and is relentlessly driving his own agenda and breaking all these eggs to make the omelette, where's the omelette? This, yeah. this Pope, if we know nothing else about him, it's that he speaks his mind. He speaks his mind very openly. It seems to me that if he was driving for the sort of hard change in dogma and practice that people who some are calling his allies in the media are claiming he wants, we'd know about it. There wouldn't be confusion. If that's what the Pope wanted, I think we'd hear about it. Isn't I think that another say way of saying that the Pope himself is, is a bit confused? I don't know that he's a Because you say confused. he speaks his mind, but he contradicts himself all the time. Well, he's spontaneous, and if you speak spontaneously, you can end up turning yourself around a little bit. But I think the trend of his pontificate and his priority, as near as I can put a label on it, is he wants a change of pastoral tone. And I don't think there's a problem with that. And I think the people who are his most vile critics on Twitter, online, in Catholic media, whatever you want to call it, tend to be the ones who are opposed to that exact thing. They're opposed to a shift in language. Okay, Ed, he wants a a shift in language, a change in pastoral tone. At the same time, he slags off his own clergy relentlessly. He's constantly upbraiding people. And although I've had a cardinal who is not sympathetic to him tell me he loves the Lord, Francis loves the Lord. On the other hand... So many people are afraid of him. They're afraid of his temper and they're afraid that he will take action against them. Dan, what's your take on that? The book is a very cynical portrait. But as you say, there's not much in there about his spirituality. There's not much attempting to find the good motive for whatever the Pope might be doing. And I think that's deliberate. It's written as a corrective to the mass media image of the Pope as the sort of cool Pope who preaches a message of love and forgiveness, you know, is close to the poor. I mean, there's a lot of truth in all of this. But, I mean, I sort of corresponded with him over email. He said, this is the the point of the book, is that... Um, with the author. The, the media, is, yeah, yeah, the author, that's right. <clears throat> Don't correspond with the Pope too often. <laughs> that's because he doesn't use email. He Otherwise, he'd be on to you every day. Is another then. matter, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, Snapchat. And, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, his, his view is that the media has got the Pope completely wrong by presenting him in a kind of uncritical light, and that maybe that's influenced Catholics, has even influenced the church hierarchy. So it's sort of a overcorrective to that view. And, I mean, maybe that's not the end of the world, even though I think the book is too harsh. I mean, it lays itself open to charges of, of being unreliable and, and passing on gossip. But I think we've had about at least 150 years or so of adulation for, for the Pope. You know, the, uh, yeah. what was it, 1870? Yeah. You know, papal infallibility is, is defined, and that's the great theological achievement. It's to say, under these circumstances, the Pope, you know, which are quite narrow circumstances, but the Pope can actually say something which is you know, definitively true for all Catholics. And since then, we've had one after another great intellectuals, great warriors for the faith, great reformers, great pastors and it's built up including in in the mass media into an image of the papacy and of 
every word that comes out of the Pope's mouth as, you know, being the gold standard of Catholic teaching, which at some point had to end. And I wonder if this this century might be the century where we kind of define the circumstances well, we in which... Well, we rethink the, the papacy, not, and this is, well, this is yeah. interesting to me because I've heard a, a few Catholics say, perhaps on both sides of the argument, say, well, the way Francis has conducted himself in the office, I really think it's very far from ideal. I, th- I think he's the, the weakest pope for a very, very long time, the worst for a very long time, not necessarily for the reasons given in the book, but simply because he seems angry and directionless a lot of the time. But people on both sides of the divide are saying we're going to have to rethink what the authority of the pope actually is is because we have this paradox of a man who came in rather ostentatiously humble. I think one of the funny things in the book is it emphasizes how his humble moments are always carefully placed photographers to catch them. But having been ostentatiously humble seems to be trying to concentrate power in his own hands to a far greater degree than his immediate predecessor. And this paradox is leading people to think, well, what is the Pope supposed to be like? What are the limits of his authority? He seems to be challenging church doctrine, but aren't they supposed to be one and the same thing? What is the Pope for? Well, I think at the moment... The Pope we knew been... until quite recently. Well, well, okay, so there's a couple of things. First of all, the limits of papal infallibility exist yeah. and are well known. Ironically, all these people who are treating every word that cometh from the mouth of Pope Francis as unchallengeable or not open to any sort of interpretation or correction tend to be the ones who identify themselves most closely with Vatican II, which ironically, made very clear and was redrafted to make very clear that the Pope is not above doctrine. The Pope is not in a position to perform doctrinal U-turns. But the people who want Pope Francis to perform doctrinal U-turn are the ones who tend to say, oh, we are the Church of Vatican II. They just don't seem to have read any of the That's a very interesting point. So there's that. I think the Pope's authority, his administrative authority, not his pastoral authority, not his teaching authority, his governatorial authority, I think is being abused. Not by him. I think people are using him to abuse it. And he's, in a sense, at times an unwitting tool, I think. We've seen a number of occasions recently where papal authority, administrative authority, not sort of pontifical infallibility, but papal administrative authority, is being invoked to overrule the normal governance of the church, the normal governing structures of the Vatican itself. I don't want to go too far down the cul-de-sac of this, but a good case in point is how the Knights of Malta were treated, where Pope Francis gave an instruction to Cardinal Burke saying, I've heard some pretty nasty stories involving how this thing is being run. There's questions about money. There's questions about Freemasonry. There's questions about distributing contraceptives. Go in there, find out what's going on and report back. And what happened was exactly what the Pope ordered. They got to the bottom of all of this, they got rid of the people who were in charge, and they all went screaming to Cardinal Paroline, the Cardinal Secretary of State, who then got Pope Francis to basically overrule them all, reinstate the people who were thrown out, and the motivating force behind all this seems as near as anyone can get to it to be 120 million euros sitting in an offshore trust fund somewhere. So I don't think the Pope suddenly came to a a U-turn in his own mind about what he wanted to see done with the Knights of Malta. I think he had the wool pulled over his eyes. Okay, one one last thing is bothering me. This book, although a hatchet job, contains, I think, a lot of information that we didn't know before and charges that need to be answered. Why is it being comprehensively ignored, Dan? 
well, there's a sort of a virtuous reason and, and a vicious reason. The virtuous reason is people have an instinct towards the Pope. He's the Holy Father, you know. He is a father to all Catholics, and people don't want to say, look, there's this great expose about all the terrible things happening in the Vatican, which, you know, is, is fair enough. It might not always be helpful, but I think it's a basically yeah, innocent yeah, motive. Absolutely. And the other one is that there is this feeling among a sort of older, you might say, progressive group in in the church who, who really thought their their time had gone that the chance of a church which you know ordained women accepted contraception and divorce etc etc they thought that chance had gone and they think they've seen however much pope francis himself has to do with this and has encouraged it they think they've seen in the last three years a chance to make that happen so they're very reluctant to criticize anything in the current direction of the church I think I'd buy every word of that. What about you, Ed? I agree with most of it. I'd shift the focus slightly and say that it's not that they're overly deferential. I think it goes back to this. They see Pope Francis as a tool to be used. And there are a lot of people in sways of the Catholic media, the secular media, and also in the church, who are terrified that this Pope might be seen in 3D. They only want one side of him. They only want things to be seen through their lens. And anything that might shift the narrative, change the way people view Pope Francis as a person, not as a pope, is absolutely anathema to them. Because as long as he's held out as this flat, one-dimensional, great liberal lion who's coming along to you know clear out the dead wood of church doctrine, their, their agenda is being moved forward, whether the pope wants it to or not, whether the pope's aware of how they're doing it or not. And I think that's the reason it's being ignored. I mean, for example, we were talking earlier about this interpretation of Amoris Laetitia written by the Argentine bishops that the Pope endorsed, supposedly. What the Pope actually did was write back to him and say, oh, this is a very good interpretation. Thank you very much. I like it. And again, it does not say explicitly that the divorced and remarried can receive communion. It's very torturously worded. Um, but now it's appeared in the Act Apostolic Cessades, which is the sort of official gubernatorial or diplomatic acts of the Holy See every year. And everyone's saying, aha, this shows you that the Pope is clearly wants this to be read as law. Well, first of all, publication in the AAS doesn't make it law. But the second thing is, you can't tell everyone simultaneously that this is a Pope who has, as a total curial outsider, has no knowledge of or patience with the old way of doing things in the sort of mechanical levers of government in the Vatican. And at the same time say, he specifically wanted this published in the AAS, and we should read a lot into this action. I don't believe that Pope Francis said, oh, make sure that goes in the acta. I don't think he did. I think someone brought it to him and said, oh, will you sign this so it's included? And he did. That, to me, is a much more consistent reading with what we know about Pope Francis. And I think it shows that people are trying to manipulate how he's viewed. It's not good news, is it? Well, it's not great news, but it shows that, at least for me, that we have a Pope and a Pope who does, I think, love the Church and love God and love the teaching of the Church. But what he doesn't have are many people who have his best interests at heart around him in the Vatican. I think we were discussing earlier how this sort of confusion didn't arise under Pope Benedict or under John Paul II. Well, of course, John Paul II had Cardinal Ratzinger, and Pope Benedict was Cardinal Ratzinger. He had this voice of quiet clarity whenever something needed to be ironed out. And Pope Francis doesn't have that. And the reason he doesn't have anyone like that around him is because people in the Curia have been successfully kneecapping them every year. Anyone who looks like they might be too clear a voice in favor of tradition or traditional teaching or a traditional way of speaking in the church finds themselves out in the cold and out of a job. Well, the dictator Pope is very clear who's doing the kneecapping. Mm. 
That's not the impression I get. The people I speak to who work in the Vatican and the various dicasteries, they don't walk in fear of the Pope personally. They walk in fear of the people at the Secretariat of State. Oh, Lord. They don't think the Pope Francis is tapping their phones. They think it's Archbishop Betchew. Somebody is tapping phones in the Vatican. They I, absolutely I, I, are, but I again, I don't think it's the Pope. I, I know that because, let me just say, any journalist will tell you this, that if you contact somebody on a Vatican email or speak to them on an official Vatican phone, they say, get off, you know, we, we need to speak privately. It's a very strange state of affairs. Ed Condon, Dan Hitchens, thank you very much. <laughs>